Amen. What well, is great to worship with you and to celebrate communion with you and to recognize that we have a king who loves us and adopts us into his family. You're in a new series that we started last week called Royal Habits. We're looking at the habits of kings. But specifically, what are the six disciplines that you and I want to put into our life in order to fully be formed into what God has for us? Last week we looked at prayer. Today we're going to look at how to trust God during grief. We're going to look at repentance. We're going to look at worship, assessing all these different disciplines together. See, when God uh, told the people not to have a king way back in 1 Samuel, they wanted a king anyway. He said, well, if you're going to have a king, at least every day I want these kings to read a specific passage from Deuteronomy that would list out ways in which they'd stay close to God, habits they put in place for them and God. And so we're looking at different habits that over time have helped shape people into the spiritual formation that God wants for them. At the same time, what are the habits we want in our life? And so today the habit I want to look at is the habit of grief. It's the idea of setting your house and your heart in order in that gap between what I want to happen and what God allows to happen. You ever sat in that gap? The gap says, I wanted this to be true, but God has allowed that to be true. And the grief can be the loss of someone, a parent, a child, a spouse, or a friend. But loss is not always someone, sometimes it's something. The loss of your health and things you used to be able to do that you can't do now. The loss of a relationship. You thought you'd be this close with your sister or you thought you'd be this close with your kids and you're estranged. It could be something. It might be a relationship. It might be you had dreams of a certain career and, and you're enjoying your life, but you also thought it would be different. And you're grieving what could have been or what should have been because it's just different. Maybe you have kids or hoping to have kids, and they're grieving the inability to have those, at least for this time. Grief is an emotion that we all face in so many different ways, and it's that gap between what we want to happen and what God allows to happen, as we're going to see in Hezekiah's life. Now, I'm the kind of person that emotionally, I love dealing with emotions like joy and excitement and happiness. I love those emotions. When my grandpa died when I was in sixth grade, it's the first person I really cared about who'd passed away. I didn't have the tools to know how to deal with grief and sadness and discouragement. It would be my freshman year of college, I'd be assigned this book to read I didn't want to read for literature class called Severe Mercy. It sounded like a drag. It was a story of a man who'd lost his wife. And it was personal letters, true story of a man who lost his wife. And he started writing to C.S. Lewis about how to deal with his grief as she was slowly dying. And I got pulled into the book. It was an assignment, but I was reading it in my dorm room one day, and all of a sudden, all these emotions I hadn't thought about in six, seven years began to come out of me. As he was grieving the loss of his wife, I was suddenly grieving the loss of my grandfather for so many years earlier. And it was in the process of getting in touch with my grief, I was able to experience God's comfort and God's joy. The last 10 years of my life have been some of the best 10 years of my life. They've also been some of the hardest. And I've had to learn how to grieve. For my son, when I found out he was legally blind, and the doctor said the words blindness, I was mourning for him what he would never be able to do. 
when I found out he had autism. I was mourning for him, things he'll never need to mourn for himself. That's a lot we do as parents. We mourn on behalf of our kids. Then I mourned for myself, the loss of certain freedoms, the loss of how I envisioned my empty years uh, looking like in my marriage, now with a special needs child. There's many ways in which we mourn and grieve, and yet I want to talk today about how to do that while trusting in God. So I want to give you three ways to grieve that we get from Hezekiah's life. And the first way that we put our house and our heart in order is simply by what I'm going to call messy grief. <laughs> Set your house in order with messy grief. And I say it's messy because the Bible says we were never created for a world with death. So there isn't really an appropriate way to grieve. Because we weren't built for this. There's a sense in all of us that things shouldn't be this way. And when you feel that way, you're in line with the truth. Things shouldn't be this way. That's why it's messy. As we're going to see with Hezekiah, there's a difference between being grieving with God and being angry at God. So we step in the passage, it's the first thing we see. Grief with God versus anger at God begins when you realize that sickness or circumstances you didn't like or career changes you didn't want doesn't mean that God isn't against you. Hezekiah's been a great king and he's tried to please God. Yet in those days, it says Hezekiah was sick and near death. He had more dreams, more plans. He didn't he wanted this to be a sickness he got over and kept moving forward with. This is a health crisis for him. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said, God's got a message for you. Good. You're hoping the prophet's here, hoping for some healing. Let's get some healing over here, people. But Isaiah says, no. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order that you might die and not live. We talk about a lack of denial. I mean, do you have to say it twice? You shall die. That means you won't live. Thank you. I think I got it the first time. But this is not the message you wanted to hear. And that's why I say grief is messy. It'd be easy to be angry at God versus grieving with God. God, I want to pull you into this. God, help me process this. Walk with me through this. And we're going to see that's exactly what he does. Now, Hezekiah is not some fictional character in some fictional land in a, in a place far, far away. It's a real person. There's so much evidence for Hezekiah. Here's one little piece. A bulla says, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. This is a real man with a real reign, with a real sickness, and a real problem. That he was facing death. And one of the steps you're always going to make as you're grieving, especially because grief is messy, is you're going to at some point, hearing something you didn't want to hear, that gap between what I want and what's happening, you're going to have to turn and pray and turn and pray and turn and pray. And that's what he does. It says he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. He turned and he prayed. Now we might picture him sitting in his throne room, but he's not in his throne room. He's in bed, sick, dying. And so probably the only way he can get any privacy is to roll over in his bed up against the wall to have a moment with God where he's just going to try and, and, and weep and cry out and pray in that moment. He turns toward the wall, probably in his bedroom, and he prays the Lord saying... Why? How? Haven't I been a good guy? If you've ever had to grieve anything in your life, something that really mattered, like a scale 1 to 10, an 8, 9, or 10 that's not going the way you think it should, you know what it's like to grieve. You turn it over to God. All right, God, I trust you. God, 
I know that you're the king of the universe I'm not. You have that. And then, and then just as you, you start praying, you're like, God, give me that back. No, actually, I'm not quite sure that you can. No, no, okay, God, God, here it is. And you turn, you turn it over to him, and then you take it back again. You turn, you pray, and it's that process of learning that God is enough. And whatever this thing is, is not as important as, as him. I don't know if you remember 1982, Dave Dravacki. He wrote a book called uh, When You Can't Come Back. He had one of those incredible comebacks in sports history. He had cancer in his left arm. He was a pitcher. He was playing for San Diego at the time. It was way back then uh, in 82 that he met a fellow Christian who got him into Bible study and studying the life of Jesus. And he became a follower of Jesus. Well, then he starts pitching. Does incredibly well but finds that he has cancer and has to take some time off. And they're trying to take the cancer off. But it's on his pitching arm, his left arm. But I think they get it all, and he comes back. And if you remember, he played here in, uh, in the Red Stadium, and he actually got a standing ovation for his comeback from those of us in Cincinnati. Things were going incredibly well. He turned to his buddy who had led him to Christ many years ago, and he said, this is going to be the best season ever. I got plans. I got hopes. And he says, this is going to be the best season of my life. And his Christian friend said, well, it's not the best thing in your life. Jesus died for you on the cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, of course, that's the best thing in my life. But we're going to have a great season too. Sure. And that was in 1989 when he went out in what's known as the pitch heard around the world. Because they'd carved so much into the bone and the speed of his throw, he threw so fast that day that he broke his arm on the mound with all the world watching. And that would lead into more and more surgeries and more and more surgeries. And after two years, they realized they couldn't save the arm. And he'd have his arm amputated up to the shoulder. And he would talk about the next two years of anger at God, bitterness toward God. He was grieving. It wasn't just his arm. It was his career. It was his dreams. It was God. I'm your follower. Why would you let this happen to me? And he said good Christian friends walked with him through the grief, turning and praying, turning and praying, turning and praying. Because he realized though he said the greatest thing in the world is his relationship with God, it was really his arm and his career and his dreams. He had to grieve the loss if he'd put something in front of God. He said through loving friends who helped him in his grief, he was able to grieve the loss but also trust God with what the next stage of his life would look like. We see that with Hezekiah. He's turned and prayed, and now we hear what he prays, whispering against that wall in his bedroom. Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked with you in truth and a loyal heart. You ever done that with God? God, how can you let this happen to me? I've been a good person. I go to church. I read the Bible. I tithe. You start handing God your resume as if saying, God, based on what I've done for you, you ought to do some things for me. You ever do that? I do. It's that bargaining process. Do you think even though Jesus was perfect and he got crucified, you're not perfect but you deserve better. <laughs> I do it. And that's why grieving is often it's just a mixture of, of bargaining with God and bitterness at moments and bequesting him over and over again. He says, I have done good. There's a lot of kings we know have not done good in your sight. I have. And here he is crawled up in the corner, already feeling sick and lousy, weeping bitterly. There's just no way to go around grief. You have to go through it. Now, psychologists have these four stages of grief or five stages. Uh, the, the research shows no one's ever gone through this linearly. So these are more like observed wisdom to help, but it's certainly not linear. But we see him right there. Denial, this can't be true. Oh, anger, oh, weeping, grieving, bargaining with God. God, I've been a good person. Don't you owe me? But God wants to get to the place of acceptance. 
that his plan for our life is better than our plan for our life. That's hard. So it continues. Now Isaiah has just delivered this message, which had to be hard to deliver. Your life is over. He's on his way out to the middle court, it says. And before Isaiah got to the middle court, the Lord said to him, go back and talk to him. Well, that was a short trip, so he turns back around. And again, while he is grieving, that that gap between what should be, what is right now, but what could be, what ought to be, God sees his tears, as we'll see in a moment, and he brings a word to him. Now, sometimes that word is you're healed. Sometimes that word is I am enough. Sometimes that word is I am with you, trust me. The word's different. We all know what we're hoping for, but God does bring a word to him in his grief. God wants you to know that his presence is enough in the middle of the grief and the sorrows and the difficulty, whatever it is you're processing, to rub the hope of the gospel, the hope of his presence into your circumstances. Let me tell you about my buddy Justin. Justin and Stacy, their family were driving past our building many, many times, ten-ish years ago. And Stacy uh, turned to the family and said, hey, would you guys be willing to go to church? Varen's like, Varen's her daughter said, what's church? <laughs> like, oh, we've been at church for a long time. Our daughter didn't even know what church is. Well, it, why don't we try it out? So they came into our doors. And Justin, I was speaking that day, Justin, who's a bit of a party, a life of the party. You just, you'd love Justin to be around him, but not necessarily a real church-going guy. He came out of our service that day and he said, man, I like that. I like that yours to explore environment. I didn't feel dumb. I didn't feel like a big blanket of guilt was dumped on me. And I feel like I was encouraged to get to know God more. And they started coming, and they started coming, and they started coming. And he became a follower of Jesus, and he began to trust Christ. Then he found out he had ALS. The last three years, we've seen him fight ALS boldly and courageously. And I've been texting back and forth with him because he can text with his eyes. And, and he was sharing the hope he had in Jesus for a new body. And in the last couple months, we've been heading toward his death. And he wanted to plan his funeral, and he loves hockey. He likes the Blackhawks. He says, I want a hockey funeral. I've never done one of those. We can do that. <laughs> hockey funeral. So I want everybody dressed in their favorite hockey uniform. And I want to tell people the hope I have, that my hope in Christ is if you're a follower of Jesus, you get a new body. You get to keep playing hockey in heaven. It's a real place with real bodies. So at his funeral, his daughter and her hockey team came up. And we raised sticks over his body and celebrated that he's going to play hockey again. And many of his friends, some are religious, some are not in the room. Many of them played hockey with him in their 20s and 30s. And they wanted to commemorate their buddy. So I had them all stand on each side at the end of the service. We wanted to escort him into glory. Metaphorically, we're saying we're trusting that he's putting his confidence not in what he did for God, but what God did for him. Let me show you what that looked like. That final moment with all his friends gathered around, hearing the faith he had. Yeah, he was known as a a fun guy and a party guy and a life of the party, but he put his ultimate confidence in Jesus. I got a chance to hug Stacy, you'll see, giving her a big hug. She lost her husband, 39 years old. And to walk with the family and push, push the casket through this archway we created. And we laughed during his funeral we cried during this funeral. Stacy texted me today. She's watching right now online. 
as we rub the hope of the gospel into our grief. That's why I call it messy grief. But God has hope and promises that we can rub into it. And one of those promises is the second way that we grieve. The second way that we grieve is by realizing that God numbers our days. See, we all have a number. The number of salary we should have had by now, the number of kids we should have had by now, the number of, of days of sickness we should or shouldn't have had. We have a number. But God maybe has a different number. And the question is, can you recognize that he numbers your days and his number is better than your number? That's hard to do. That's that gap. So Isaiah has just turned around. He's come back and he says, the Lord has a message for you, Hezekiah. Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, surely I will heal you. Now, one of the stakes that is very high in this passage is that, as best we know, Hezekiah doesn't have any kids at this point, some scholars say. Well, the Messiah has got to come through his bloodline. How can he be dying? We need a, an heir. And his son Manasseh, one of the worst kings of all of Judah, that God still works through, ends up in the very family tree of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. So God says, I'm going to heal you. But even then, but you got to wait three days before you go to temple. Why on the third day? The little hints of Jesus here, the third day, death to resurrection. Also another one of those numbers. Number, how about you heal me right now? How about I go to temple right now? Nope, three days. Trust me. You're going to go up to the house of the Lord in three days. You're going to feel good. And I will add to your days 15 years. 15 years? Awesome. Could we get 20? Right? The numbers. See, all of us are dying. All of our days are on loan from God. Will we trust his number over our number? I will deliver you and I will deliver the city from your worst, your worst fear, the fear of the king of Assyria. I will defend the city for my name's sake and for the sake of my servant David. I'm going to bring an heir from you just like I promised David I would. Now Isaiah has so many incredible promises for God's people that he gives. This is a piece just right in the book of 2 Kings. Well, over the next couple of months we're going to be studying Isaiah quick piece of where we're headed. Right now we're in a series on spiritual disciplines, which is what we're in right now, called Royal Habits. Then we're going to do a series about intimacy and marriage. I've been finishing up the last couple weeks. It's really going to be great. We're going to get a little warm in here as we talk about sex and marriage. Uh, but it, it's really going to be awesome on how to improve and have the vision uh, of relationship and how to move toward the ideal wherever you are in your relationships. Then we're going to do a series on Isaiah, the prophet we're hearing here. He's going to give us these nuggets of comfort and hope in the midst of difficulty to get through whatever you get through because God is with you. Then we're going to study the book of Matthew, how Jesus fulfills all the predictions of the Old Testament. Then we're going to study the book of Psalms. It's going to be an amazing year planned. Our creative team has got amazing things planned, including studying more about what Isaiah says. Now maybe you've got a friend like, like Justin. Maybe he's kicking the tires on Christianity. Or you're not even sure they'd be interested in church. This is a place with our exploring service and our equipping service to invite friends who aren't sure where they are with God. So we have an incredible series starting this year to invite your friends to. One is called, starts next week, Jesus Jiu-Jitsu. I have been down uh, with an MMA trainer. He's been training me how to do jiu-jitsu. We got uh, every week we're going to talk about different jiu-jitsu things. And we're going to show how Jesus turned everything upside down. You find your life by losing it. Better to give than receive. 
We're going to show how Jesus turned everything upside down. Next week is an incredible gospel presentation. The, the trainer, uh, MMA fighter, six degree black belt and like 20 things is going to share his journey to faith. You do not want to miss it. It's a great chance to invite a friend like Justin. Then we've got a series. We're going to turn the whole service into a cooking show called Foodie. Look at different foods of the Bible, how they all point to God and Jesus. A series called Seven Wonders, Apologetics. We look at seven things we wonder about from the seven wonders of the world. And then we're going to end the holidays this year talking about button pushers, how to keep people from pushing your buttons around the holidays. You might need that. So back to Isaiah. So Isaiah says, all right, God has a word for you. Take a lump of figs. Give me some fig newtons. Get a lump of figs. And they took it and they laid it to boil. So they're boiling the figs. And they put it on his boil. And he recovered. So even the miracle had a little bit of medicinal. So don't feel bad about taking medicine. Some medicine and a miracle here. So Hezekiah recovers from the sickness. And he says to Isaiah, how do I know for sure I'm going to be healed and get 15 years though? What's the sign that the Lord will heal me? So you kind of see this little bit of testing the Lord God, a little bit of like a Gideon's fleece, which isn't really what we should do. Jesus says, do not test God. But again, God is so gracious and God is so kind. He even meets his, you get 15 years plus a sign. So Isaiah says, this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will, go, will do the thing which he has spoken. God does what he says, but I'll give you a sign. Tell you what, God God says, do you want the shadow, here's the shadow right here, do you want it to go 10 degrees backward or 10 degrees forward? So I think Peter Pan, you know, the shadow doesn't quite line up to what it should do here. He's getting the, he's getting the Peter Pan miracle here, it's pretty awesome. So what do you want, 10 degrees forward or 10 degrees back? Hezekiah's like, well, naturally it would go forward if the sun keeps going the way it's going. I want it backward. Hey God, we're looking for a backward miracle down here. So sure enough. Hezekiah said, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go 10 degrees that way. So let the shadow go backwards 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord, 10 degrees backward, coming down. He brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So God has not only healed him, not only been in comfort him in his grief, not only given him 15 more years, but God also gives him the, the miracle of the shadow. Now, how do he do this? I don't know. He's God. But I like to think of how he might have done it. So take this for what it's worth. Imagine here's a, a, a pool with steps around the time of Hezekiah. So you got these shadows going down the stairs. And somehow the shadows on both the stairs and it relates to the sundial. I'm not sure exactly how they're fit together. It's not real clear. So the sundial is going to move, but also the shadow on the steps is going to move 10 degrees. So one way God might have done it, you think the sun is going down, therefore the shadow is going this direction. So one thing God could have done is just teleport, for lack of a better word, us back in our solar system just enough degrees that the shadow moved. I guess he could do that. He's God. He made the world in the, in, uh, instantly. He could probably do that. What he also might have done, if you work with photography or video, you know there's a primary and a secondary light source. And a primary light source will overcome a secondary light source. So if the sun was going down... And he said an angel. And every time you see an angel in the Bible, they're just like bright light, bright light, bright light. The angel would have been a primary light source and it would have actually shaped the shadow differently. I don't know. It was a miracle either way. But God was saying, and, and I love this idea because the sun is showing that God not only numbers your days, but God controls the universe. And that's actually what you need when you grieve. God has a number and his number is not my number. But I'm going to trust him. And God controls the solar system and the sun and even the shadows around me. I don't. And 
I'm going to trust him. It's messy grief. It's remembering in my grief that he numbers my days. And all of us, our kids are on loan from God. Our parents are on loan from God. The time with our spouses are on loan from God. And God can take back what's his whenever he wants to. And as hard as that is, God wants us to know that he is sovereign and he is in control and he is with you. Which moves us to our third step of grief. And that is, are you willing to show the reason for your hope and your circumstances even when you get an answer you don't prefer? Now, he just got an answer he did prefer, right? He did prefer 15 more years. He got 15 more years. But he's about to hear another message that he doesn't prefer. And the question we're going to ask ourselves is, are you willing to set your house and heart in order by showing other people the reason for your hope is in him? He is what gave you those days. He's when it does a miracle. He's when it's given you what you have. Are you willing to show he is the reason for your hope even when you accept answers you don't prefer? Here's what happens. Baradak Baladan, who's a predecessor to King Nebuchadnezzar, who will eventually come and conquer Judah. This is his predecessor. Sent letters and, and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah was very attentive to the people who came with this message and to the gifts, apparently. So Babylon is nervous about Assyria, who has just taken over northern Israel, known as Israel. So they've been taken over by Assyria. And so Babylon is most concerned about Assyria, but Assyria is just to the north of Judah where Hezekiah is. And so they kind of want to keep Judah friends in case they want to do a two-front war. So Babylon's not quite an enemy yet, but they're not really friends either. So he sends them a nice note to kind of make sure they're on speaking terms because he's really worried about Assyria. So when these messengers come with a gift about his sickness, and maybe they heard about the crazy shadow miracle spreading through the town, spreading through the land, what do you say if you're Hezekiah? Oh my goodness, let me tell you about the God that lives in Israel. He healed me. He moved a shadow. I don't know what kind of God you're serving up there in Babylon. you got to get to know our God. That's what he could have done. He could have shown the reason for his hope and his life. A few minutes ago he was dependent, rolled up against a wall depending on God. But now that he's back to being healthy, the people show up. Does he talk about God? No, it says he was attentive to them and he showed them all the house of his treasures. Have you seen my salary? <laughs> Have you seen my checkbook? Have you seen my savings accounts? He doesn't say, have you seen God's treasures? Have you seen what God has entrusted? He's now boasting and bragging about his own resources. The same resources that were totally inadequate to do anything for his life a few minutes ago. He shows them the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all of his armory. Look how powerful I am. Look how wealthy I am. Look how amazing I am. Me, me, me. He's an opera singer. Me, 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 me. In a time he should have been talking about God, 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 God. And then look at this. Now, this is a foreign power that will eventually destroy them. If your foreign power, that's at least a potential enemy, comes to town, do you show them all your armory? Do you show them all your treasures? Hey, I know you, you might want to think about coming and pilfering us, but let me show you everything I got in case you ever attack us. <laughs> Hello, McFly. Does this make any sense? But pride doesn't make any sense. 
Showing off your power amongst powerful people. Showing off your wealth amongst wealthy people. <laughs> there was nothing in his house and his whole dominion that he did not show them. So quick reminder where we are in the Old Testament. We're in the time of the kings. Saul, David, Solomon. The kingdom gets divided into the north and the south. The north has already been conquered now by the Assyrians. The Babylonians are worried about the Assyrians, and they will eventually, through Nebuchadnezzar, conquer the south. We are right here in the Old Testament. And the Babylonians show up, and he says, how about a tour? Let me show you my storehouses. Here's one of the storehouses archaeologists have picked up. And he kind of gives them a tour. Here's the governor's mansion. There's the governor's house over there. And there's the four-chambered gate. Hey, come on over here. Let me show you where we keep the guns. Show you where we keep the spores. Let me show you where we keep the shields. Oh, here's our incredible watering system that we made. Here's our basement building. In case you ever wanted to break in from the basement, here's kind of how you get there. He gives them a tour of all of his resources. And the point here is he doesn't turn the attention back to God. Many of us are going to be in circumstances we don't like and we don't prefer. The question is, will you depend on God and turn attention to God while you're in circumstances you don't prefer? Isaiah shows up. He says, God has another message for you, Hezekiah. It's going to begin with a question. You almost feel like you're in the Garden of Eden. Hey, uh, are you naked? Isaiah the prophet said to King Hezekiah, he said to him, hey, what did these men say? And notice the question, what did these men say? And from where did they come from? Hezekiah deflects the first question, only answers the second. Yeah, they came from a far-off country from Babylon. Classic deflection. Isaiah pushes in. What have they seen in your house? And to Hezekiah's credit, he owns up to what he's done. Unlike many kings before him. Hezekiah answered, well, they've seen all. But again, notice the word my again that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. So even though he does own it, you just still see this emphasis on me, 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 me. And Isaiah says, you're not taking an opportunity to show Gentiles how incredible the God of Israel is. You're here to be a light. So God has a consequence for you, and you're not going to like it. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming that all that is in your house is going to be taken. All that your fathers have accumulated, all that wealth you've been showing off, all that power you've been showing off, all those armaments you've been showing off, it's going to be carried away to Babylon. Huh. Nothing's going to be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons. So either this means he's going to have some sons, or some scholars think that maybe this part of the passage happened a little bit earlier in time. It's been placed here. We're not sure exactly. But it certainly shows he's going to have sons. And one of those is going to be in the messianic line. But those sons are going to face consequences because you didn't bring attention to me and glorifying me in your circumstances. And they're going to take away some of your sons who will descend from you, or who will, there it is, is the future, whom you will beget, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
this is not the answer he preferred. He's back in that gap. But notice the humility that he's willing to accept the answers he doesn't prefer. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. I'll accept it. I deserve it. Are you willing to take whatever circumstances you're in that you don't prefer and say, God, that's good. I will accept it because you'll be enough to get me through. I'll show you a picture of my wedding picture from 29 years ago. I'm the 12-year-old on the left. I was 21 on that day. It was my 21st birthday. This is my best friend Tyler, Matt, and Jim. And did you know three of us became pastors? Me, Tyler, and Matt became pastors. Jim on the right is not a pastor. Yet I think Jim might be, do the best job of bringing attention to Jesus in his circumstances than any of us. When Jim was 20-something, 23, 24, he had an accident in his cabinet business, and he severed his spine and went into a wheelchair. He'd been married for a year, and his wife didn't sign up for this, and so she divorced him a year later. And circumstances that could drive anybody to be angry and bitter, and understandably so, Jim in his wheelchair has glorified God more than few people I know on Facebook in person, boldly declaring his trust in God, his hope of a new body because of God. He didn't prefer what happened, but God has a plan for him despite that. So every time I think of my wedding picture, I think of three pastors and somebody who really has credibility about talking about God. So do you want to know how to grieve well? If you want to grieve well, you're going to need to learn how to dig a deeper well. Get close with God. Challenges are coming in your life. I don't know if it's two years off or ten years off, but challenges are coming. And if you don't develop the habits of prayer and grief and trust and repentance, your well's not going to be deep enough to have the reservoir you need when the challenges come. Grieving well requires digging a deeper well. And that's why this passage ends saying, let me tell you what Hezekiah is known for. He's known for his well. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all of his might and power that he had, how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city. Are these not written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. So let me walk you through that tunnel. As we go through the tunnel... He knew a barrage was eventually coming from Babylon. There is a pool just outside of the city gates. He's got to somehow get the resources from there to where he is. He sets one team of people up at the, the spring, and they begin to tunnel their way down. Another group begins to tunnel from the pool, and they're going to meet in the middle. The water's got to flow downhill. He wants to make sure that when the siege comes, when the challenges come, he's got a deep enough well to give the resources he needs for those challenges. It's a long distance. Without modern technology, when they get those tunnels together, they only miss each other by three inches. Otherwise, it's precise. Life's going to take you down some of these tunnels. Some of you are in tunnels right now. And there's a lot of chiseling. It's a lot of spelunking. You're like, God, I don't want to be a spelunker. Let's go out in the sun. There's moments these tunnels can be beautiful. You walk your way down from the spring, 
God's doing some amazing things. It feels like fun work for a while, and then it just feels like work. And then it just feels like drudgery. God, I don't want to be here. God, I don't want to be in this tunnel. Sometimes it gets dark and tight and hard. And you think, this isn't a tunnel, this is a cave. It's not going anywhere, it's pointless. Now I want you to know that whatever tunnel you're going through, God says, I am with you. The psalmist says, I am an ever ready help in tight places. He says, I can barely even fit through here, God. There's no way I'm going to make it. And God says, take my hand. I am with you. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I am with you. And this is not a cave. It's a tunnel. There is a light on the other side, and there are resources on the other side. And I want you to know, when you come through this, when we get through this, you're going to find that there is a pool of comfort that you can bathe in. There's a, a pool of my strength that you never knew you could have access to. There is a sense of fortified knowledge that I have for you, that if you will trust me, if you will walk through this with me, you will find it. So wherever you're grieving this morning, God wants you to dig a deeper well, and that well is his presence, that well is his promises, that well is an understanding of his work in your life. And while you're going through those tunnels to say, I'm trusting in God, not myself. I'm trusting in God, not my power, not my, my, my money, not my influence. And God wants us to make the song of our heart a song that says, God, I need you. Not just when I'm rolling over on the side of the wall sick and saying, God, I need you, I'm going to die, and I don't want to die. But I need you today when I'm powerful. I need you today when I'm wealthy. I need you today when I'm fully in armament. So why don't you stand with me and let us sing the song to God that Hezekiah should have made the song of his life. Lord, I need you every day and every hour. Let's pray together. I just want to start with those words, God, I need you right now. Maybe you want to say, Father, forgive me for how often I ignore you. Forgive me for how often I don't prioritize you. Forgive me for running my life without you. Thank you for being the king who died for all of that. Forgive me. Lead me. Be my ever ready help in my tight places. Maybe just take a moment, tell him about your, your tight place, invite him into that moment of loss or that moment of grief or that moment of challenge. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is acquainted with grief. You know what it's like to live in sorrow and have people betray you. You know what it's like to lose a, a family member to injustice with John the Baptist. You know what it's like to, to weep with friends when, when Lazarus was in the grave. Father, I thank you that you are the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, and we invite you to just do your work in us through these new habits we're forming in our life. Dig our wells deep, Father. We need your resources. In Jesus' name.
Amen.